Welcome to Making Action Happen with Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. We're here to discuss public policy issues in our home state of Colorado and beyond. Making Action Happen is presented by Action 22. Find out more about our organization at action22.org. Now, here are your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. Good afternoon on this super sunny day in Colorado. I'm Sarah Blackhurst. I'm Brian McCain. And we're coming back with another episode of Making Action Happen, the show that we do for our Action 22 members in Colorado um, throughout the country and uh, including throughout the world. We have a lot of listeners from other countries, too. So um, we're going to just dive in. We're sort of going to do a debrief today on a meeting that happened in Pueblo um, earlier today something we are incredibly excited about uh, that we've been talking about with Brian in his previous life, um, myself uh, in previous life too, but also since we've been here. Um, And that is uh, energy, but in particular, nuclear energy. And they're talking about doing this here in Pueblo. So this morning was an interesting meeting. Yeah, so um, I sort of paid attention to it. There was a lot of technical stuff going on, and I was doing some other things. But basically, I would say about, oh gosh, it's been a while, maybe 10, more than 10 years ago, uh, there was a proposal to bring small, I think at the time they were called like small pebble nuclear reactors to Pueblo. I think they were going to do like five to seven of them. Um, They even had a site set out. They had ideas for a college program to train the workforce, bring lots of high-paying jobs to Pueblo for nuclear technicians and engineers. Um, obviously, the construction would have went for, you know, years to, to get these established because it's not something you can just, like, throw on the ground and it starts working. Right. And about that time, there there was a movement here in Pueblo that was no nuclear energy in Pueblo, Um I, I joke and say it's a holdover from the hippie movement from the 60s and 70s. Uh, right. But it, it was that, you know, it was a, a group of activists here that didn't want to see nuclear in Pueblo. And that, that was, that's what they did. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong. Um, and then Fukushima happens right, right then. And so in the middle of all this going on, you have the incident in Japan. And it, everybody kind of just backed off on it. And so I noticed... Probably about five years ago, the chatter, or as I like to say, the reading the ether, um, Pueblo, uh, you started to see different people kind of poke up at energy meetings, you know, with Black Hills, Excel, uh, any of our energy providers here, utilities providers in the, the region, and you heard the chatter, you know, nuclear, nuclear, nuclear. During this time, the Colorado legislature did pass bills that would basically cut greenhouse emissions in Colorado, switch to a more renewable energy format, which we've talked about a million times on the show. Right. So I won't bore you with that. But we know where Colorado's going and, and what the legislature has done and what the voters has done as the future of energy for Colorado. And what is the greenest energy with zero carbon emissions? Well, I say it's green energy. Certain people say it's not, but I, I think nuclear is classified as a renewable energy, green energy. Um, but it has zero carbon emissions. So while we're transitioning to this renewable energy portfolio in Colorado to get away from carbon emissions, uh, you, you have solar, you have windmills, um, you know, there's small hydroelectric. Uh, there are some geothermal 
places, I believe on the Western Slope, but I, I don't think those are quite ready yet. Uh, anyway, that's where we're going, right? Solar wind is great, but the sun doesn't, as they say, the sun doesn't shine all the time and the wind doesn't blow all the time. So it does, you still have to rely on some of the traditional means for energy production, such as uh, coal and gas. But nuclear reacts constantly and it is a, a constant source of energy. So that's always been my argument. If you truly want to go to renewable green energy, it's nuclear. And we're not talking these massive nuclear plants. We're talking small reactors. I forget what the term is for them now. Uh, and that would be zero carbon emissions and stable, clean energy provided and constant energy. So that's starting to come up again. And I thought it was interesting that, you know, we got this invite for this discussion with, I think, the Secretary of Energy or one of the uh, undersecretaries yeah. to talk about this and what it can mean for Pueblo. And I'm, I'm excited about it because I've always been a proponent of this. Um, again, we're not talking a 10-story giant, you know, the Simpsons where Homer Simpson <laughs> works thing in our backyard. These are smaller. Uh, I believe they would be smaller than Comanche sitting out there right now. Uh, and... It's great. And another thing that was talked about today, you know, there didn't seem to be any concerns with it, no real pushback. There was a question about, you know, where does the waste go? Like how much waste is generated here? And that's another complicated thing, but basically zero. They, there's not going to be nuclear waste from it. Eventually there will be, and that's part of decommissioning it. And the other thing that they brought up was, and I've said this for years, is that if you want to talk about small nuclear reactors, you know, we've been putting them on ships since the 50s, yeah. 60s. Yeah, I think it was the 60s. I can't remember when the first nuclear-powered ship was. but And they even mentioned today that the DOD is aggressive with this and trying to provide power to their bases so they don't have to rely on fossil fuel and generators to power some of these stations. Um, so people that say it's not safe, I'm like, well, we put, you know, our armed service members, right. they sleep next to a nuclear reactor for years in their career, and they're on these ships. And we've never really seen an incident on any of our naval ships with the nuclear reactor. I know Russia's had some problems, but it, I think they're safe. And, and now they're safer than they were 10 years ago when this discussion first started here in Pueblo. So I remember having this discussion, and I, I asked it a few times um, in the last couple of years over this, uh, this exact thing, because my thought was, um, if we're going to get serious about reducing carbon in, uh, footprint, if we're going to do that, um, if we're really serious about talking about green energy, and it is classified, I've looked it up. I keep questioning myself on that, and then I look it yeah. up again, and I'll question myself, and I'll look it up again. And then right recently, yeah, recently Bill Gates has really gotten behind this. And there was a, I was reading an article about this guy that's, um, there's there's a book and they've written about it. It's really, I think it's very timely. And so setting aside anything that's happened or the way people felt about it, um, 20, 30, 40, 50, however long we've been doing this, years ago, um, and really fast forwarding to today, it's a very different animal. Yeah, and so I'm just pulling it up right now. So depending on which site you click on, so Fair. nuclear energy is considered, according to energy.gov, so this is the federal government saying this, nuclear is a zero emission clean energy source. 
Yes. But then you get down to the other ones and it's like nuclear energy is a non-renewable energy source which makes sense it's not renewable it's not re it's not considered renewable it's just that it doesn't run out for a long time uh, but then some of the arguments against it it is not green energy because you still have to mine out the uranium and the the material to go on it okay. which actually is mined here in colorado right uh, not people many people remember or know that we do have uranium mines and the holdover from back before we did things smarter when it came to this especially on the West Slope. You know, there are uranium mine tellings that are a problem that they are cleaning up right now, and the EPA is involved with this. Right. But, yeah, depending on who you talk to, there's like, no, it's not green. You know, yes, it's green, it's bad, but it is by the government, the federal government, nuclear is a zero-emission clean energy source. That's how they classify it. So here's the interesting, on the political side of it, that's just hap that's happening right now. So there was so much discussion about you know, um, House Bill, or Senate Bill 200 mm -hmm. this last year, and then a whole bunch of those uh, provisions went over to 1266. We had, we had opposed 200. The governor was opposed to 200. Um, but that was, the, that was an energy bill. But what's happening right now is that um, the environmentalists are saying, um, you set these goals two years ago, and they weren't aggressive enough. So what you need to do now is to reduce it, to move the timeline up. That was the big push is yes. move the timeline up. So, but realistically, logistically, it's not possible to move the timeline up. And it was, it's been absolute brain damage to try to explain this to um, some of these environmental groups. Yes, which... Here's the loudest one here, and this okay. is tied to the, the group here in Pueblo that protested it originally. It says, no contemporary energy sources is environmentally irresponsible, imposes such a high liability on taxpayers, or is as dangerous as nuclear power. Industry efforts to greenwash nuclear energy make a mockery of clean energy goals. Although nuclear reactors do not emit carbon dioxide, promoting nuclear risks to reduce greenhouse emissions is the classic jump from the frying pan and into the fire. So that's kind of the attitude that the anti-nuclear people that I think is gonna we're gonna see here in the region if they do go forward with this. And some but of the and what's it, the science behind that argument? Well, it's I think it's a holdover from the old days of nuclear power where it did generate waste. You do have accidents like Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, Fukushima, uh, but though, but again, that was an antiquated system. That was when. We basically just threw it all together and didn't plan on the future of what was going to happen. Now, I would like to think the world, but America in particular, right now, we think about that whenever we do anything from a gas-powered plant to a coal-fired plant, you know, we have to consider the future risks and mitigation right. and the, the closure when you decommission these things. You know, when they build a power plant, in the plan is also the decommissioning of the power plant. So before they can even build the, something like a power plant, they have to have a plan on how to decommission it. 20, 30 years ago, we didn't have these plans. I mean, the chemical depot is a perfect example. It's just store all this stuff out there and we won't think about it. And now, you know, they're going through closing it down, getting rid of the chemical agent. Everything. And it's taking years and years and yeah. years to do that. So if yeah. they built the chemical depot today, it would be like, okay, we're going to store mustard gas here. How are we going to get rid of it? How are we going to close this down? Right. Same thing with the power plant. Like when they built Comanche, they had a plan for closure and how they were going to decommission it. This is going to happen with the nuclear plants as well. 
So I could think one of my problems with the whole argument is they're holding um, they're holding this entire. They want to hold everybody hostage based on things that happened literally decades ago. Yeah, and they they do have valid arguments as to why it's bad as well. Current ones, um, from the energy recovery time to the you know it takes ten to eighteen years depending on the fuel that they use um, to recover the energy that's used to to get that out of the ground and refine it. So, which also I I think ties into solar and even um, wind power to a point that nobody really talks about. You hear some sides of the argument, but you know, the, the energy and the carbon that is used to refine and mine the, the elements that go into a solar panel, you know, you could argue the same thing. It's like, yeah. well, you don't recoup that energy for 10 to 18 years, similar to nuclear, because you still have to mine rare earth minerals out of the ground to get it, which is not a clean thing. Um, you know, the windmills are built with carbon fiber. I mean, it's literally built with carbon and there is a refining process. And if anybody's seen a carbon fiber plant, it's not exactly a green energy plant. You know, there are emissions that come from this. Um, right. So you could, you could use that argument with anything, realistically. Realistically. And so you have to weigh the impacts of, of how all of it works together. Yes. So, and I guess that's what confuses me is... If not this, so logistically, can we, logistically with what we have now, with a potentially a 2030 deadline in front of us, can we um, do it on just renewable energy? No, I don't think we can. With the growth in population and needs, can we do it? What, how long would it really take so, to just be able to do that on just So it those? doesn't just go with energy. So you have, because look at it this way, there's this massive push to get rid of gas-powered cars, right? There's incentives right. for electric cars. The electricity still comes from a power plant. And I know they're trying to reduce the carbon emission, the carbon footprint from vehicles, but you still have to get electricity. So the grid is going to be, you know, pushed higher. We need more electricity, to power our cars. So if, if we go to all electric vehicles or as we do this switch in, you know, 10, 15 years where the majority of the vehicles are going to be electric, it still takes a lot of electricity to drive these vehicles. Uh, some of the other proponents of this, you know, they'll say that's why we got to increase public transportation. We need to build rails to connect the cities, um, better bus systems. Again, it still goes What's back to, you, to still, you still have this electricity that you're going to use whether it comes from coal, nuclear, or whatever, that's going to go into it. The other thing is, you know, going back to the solar thing, and the, another one that kind of fascinates me is um, it's tied into this is you have hydroelectric power. Okay. And in Colorado, you can do, it's easier to build a small hydroelectric plant. You know, there's one here at the reservoir. I think the first small hydroelectric that, was put in after a bill was passed federally, signed into law by Obama, actually written by Congressman Scott Tipton when I worked for him, oh, wow. um, was to streamline the process where you could put in a small hydroelectric generator on, say, an irrigation ditch. It's not massive. It's not going to power a town, but it will power, you know, so it'll put out some power. The problem was the permitting process was impossible to navigate, so nobody did it. Once that was signed into law and streamlined, Colorado actually did something similar. And I think it was uh, Diane H. Bush passed a similar uh, state law or wrote, sponsored a law that makes it easier 
for the, this in Colorado to do it as well. But do you hear this argument that, you know, hydroelectric is the way to go. There's zero emissions. You know, it's just taking energy from the water. But the, even that has some environmental impacts because if you're going to build a dam, first off, water is scarce. So, yeah, you know, say, we, we can't build these giant reservoirs. And we yeah. can't do, we wouldn't be able to yeah. do that under the federal water law anyway. Yeah. But, we don't have that. But even say if you could, um, most people don't realize that the environmental impact on some of these massive reservoirs like you see them built in India, um, even in China and stuff, that emits uh, methane. A like a problem, amount. a problem with reservoirs, like large bodies of water, is it does put methane into the, the air. So even that is something you would think would be the most green energy out there. It's really not when you're talking massive hydroelectric projects because it does emit methane into there. It causes methane pockets, which, again, is harmful to the environment. I mean, that's one of the arguments for the for fracking and oil and gas wells is the methane that it generates. It's like, yeah, but, you know, a lake generates just as much, if not more methane as well. So it's tricky when you want to say that you want to do an all all green renewable energy plan for a state or a city or anything, because no matter what you do, no matter how green it is, there is going to be some emissions. There's going to be a refining process. Like it's energy and I sound like I'm anti-energy right now, but you know, <laughs> generating re- energy does harm the environment, no matter how you do it. Like, um, I mean, and it's ne- it's never it's not a free process. There's nothing that we can do. So because it's the impacts, you have to weigh what legitimately is the least impactful. Yes, and also how to mitigate that and how to make up for it. Like, okay, we're going to have to mine some of this stuff. Well, what are we going to do with the mine? How are we going to uh, know restore the environment in which we take this mineral out of or we take this oil and gas out of um you know you you look at a fracking operation it's not this giant you know warehouse size huge buildings and stuff a lot of the the fracking operations if you drive by on the western slope you know they're tiny you won't even know that you wouldn't even know that that's what's like a couple tanks and like a little tower and that's it same thing with oil wells you know i I grew up going to kansas and seeing the the long arm things that go up and down and then the oil refinery or the oil storage was just a couple tanks and then they take it to refinery. Now, when you get to refineries, that's a different story. You see these massive buildings that refine it and they don't look good, but it's part of what we need to get our gas and our oil and our energy. Also with oil, you know, petroleum products, oil isn't just gas for cars. It's literally everything you touch from plastics to it's, you know, used in everything from even medication to, to everything. Like there's nothing that we interact with on a daily basis that, that is not a product of the petroleum industry. That's, so, yeah, exactly. So that, and that's another one. You can't just make this stuff go away. And as we see temperatures rise and winters get colder, uh, people need air conditioning. Um, people need heat. And where is this going to come from? I know there's a push to switch to everything electric again, and this goes back to the cars. There is a push that, you know, no more gas heaters, no more gas stoves in the state of Colorado, but that electricity has to come from somewhere. And again, as it gets colder and as it gets hotter, as we're seeing right now, we need that. And it's going to cause a strain on our grid. Look at what happened to Texas when it got too cold. It overloaded their grid. Right. And I'm afraid that if we make this push to get rid of all this stuff and just go straight electric on everything, you know, it's going to cause massive failures 
uh, winter deaths, summer deaths. Exactly. You know. So I think that's the part that's, um, that I struggle with internally is, you know, just like all Coloradans. I mean, the truth is all Coloradans are environmentalists. Yes. I mean, we all are, regardless of to what degree um, we all want to take care of the environment. But, you know, our response, we have a responsibility to the environment. We have the responsibility to do the best we can. But we also have a responsibility to Coloradans. Yes. And we can't be responsible for environmental policy for an entire world or an entire nation. We have to be able, and we're more than capable of being smart, being positively impactful on the protecting the environment as well as serving Coloradans. Yes, and it's a sim- I look at it as a symbiotic relationship. You know, some people look at the the human mother nature relationship as we're a parasite, you know, stripping mother nature away of her valuable resources. I don't think it's like that. It's more of symbiotic. It is. Because we don't want to destroy the house right now. That's not speaking for every country or even every state, but Colorado has always set the example on energy, I think. Um, and I, you know, to be fair, I don't agree with some of this stuff that they're pushing right now that has been pushed by the state and legislatures on the, the fast move to renewable energy. I just don't think it's idealistic or realistic. Realistic. Um, but on, on the flip side too, like, you know, I don't want to see strip mines in the mountains going in, which we don't have. No. And, and these energy companies do not like go strip mine the sand dunes. That's always the thing. Oh, they're going to get rid of the sand dunes for water or for <laughs> gas. It's never going to happen. Well, and I think sometimes um, we get, we get so passionate about what it is that we want to see happen that we forget what we should be doing and how we yeah. should be addressing it in a way that there's, there's ways to do all of these things and also be a leader and create the jobs and make sure that um, that our poor communities aren't um, devastated by energy policy. Yeah. Um, and, and when we talked about it early in the session, when we were start, or even before the session where we were starting to see, for example, um, let's get rid of propane and move everybody toward um, you know, what we, what they were calling beneficial electrification yes. that they do this. We're not we're not looking at it through a the layered lens. It's being looked at through, okay, let's do this. Let's make everything electric. But you're yeah. not saying, how is electricity produced? How do you think electricity is produced? Yeah, and it's the same thing. Like we talked about the food. It's like, well, where do you think our food that. comes from? But, and it was brought up in a hearing, um, I think on 200, you know, the, they were tying it into a um, social justice argument. And, yeah. and it was brought up like somebody, I think it was Don Corn brought up. He's like, well, what about economic justice? Because you're going to, you're saying that the social justice is for the communities that are poor, uh, people of color and economically underserved and impacted, that this would be better for them. And he threw in there, he's like, yeah, but their rates are going to go up. So what about the economic justice? And the argument that was brought up against that, they said, well, and I, I don't, I know where they're coming from and it's good intentions, but the, the rebuttal to Don Corm saying, what about the economic justice where people can't afford to fit their house with these, you know, high 
like solar panels or, you know, redo their insulation and stuff, or their rates go up when you get rid of coal fired plants. They said, well, the, the impact on them, it will eventually make up for it because right now people are sick due to our energy policies or working in a coal mine or living next to a refinery, which I do agree. It's not fair for anybody to live next to a refinery, but you know, they said the long-term effects of getting away from this that's the economic justice because it won't cost them as much to go to the doctor and they won't have asthma. <laughs> and then their house is like, you know, maybe not now they'll spend a lot of money on it now, but eventually all the houses will be here. So it won't be expensive anymore. And that, that was kind of a chicken, you know what, like response to that, uh-huh. because when you're in that situation, when you are in an underserved area and you want to talk about economic justice, like these people right now, that are in this situation, they're living paycheck to paycheck, you know, 20 extra dollars on their electricity bill because the coal fire plant goes down and they, you know, the ratepayers pay the cost of building the new clean, efficient, whatever. Um, Might mean they don't get that prescription. Yeah. Or they don't eat, you know, or they don't eat or, um, and I, I, I think about, I think about the, the seniors in our communities. I can't, I can't not think of them when we start to have those conversations. The cost that they don't have the money, the cost it would be to update all of these things until they're going to pay for those updates, until they make it economically feasible to do yeah. this kind of thing. Um, it, it's, it's tunnel vision, short-sighted, and you can't tell somebody that, well, we know that you can't pay for this right now, but eventually, yeah. so many years down the road, when you may not may or may not be there, you might recoup some of these costs. Like, yeah. where's the like where's the heart in that? Where's the taking care of in that? Yeah, and when we get back from this break, I'll tell you about uh, I was solicited by a solar panel person, and it was pretty hilarious because I drug them on for a while just to see what they would say and what the result of it was. But we'll talk about that. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about a little bit uh, more about um, some of the things we learned in this um, meeting today in this town hall um, that started off with Secretary uh, Granholm. Um, And then also we heard from the um, energy office, uh, Colorado Energy Office Director. So um, we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. This episode of Making Action Happen is sponsored by Action 22's amazing energy leaders. Excel Energy, Colorado Rural Electric Association, Colorado Oil and Gas Association, Gil Romero and the Capital Success Group, Black Hills Energy, Nextera Energy, San Isabel Electric Association, Outshine Energy, Colorado Solar and Storage Association, Tri-State and 174 Power Global. Action 22 is a nonpartisan, membership-driven organization which serves as a voice for action on public policy for 22 southern Colorado counties on the state and federal level. We focus on how issues relating to Colorado legislation, local government affairs, health care, education, and natural resources intersect for the economic health of our region. If you're a leader in your community and are considering joining Action 22, 
You can get more information by emailing show at action22.org or visit our website at action22.org. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. This is Making Action Happen with Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. To reach the show today, call in to 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You may also reach out via email to sarah.blackhurst at action22.org. Now, back to Making Action Happen. Hi, welcome back. We're having a discussion about uh, nuclear energy, the impact of it, um, the feasibility um, of having a plant uh, these small plants, what it looks like now. Uh, and probably this will be the first of a whole bunch of conversations we're going to be having on this. So we had, uh, and just give me a moment for just a second to sort of gush over the Pueblo County commissioners, um, Garrison Ortiz, Chris Wiseman, Epi Greco. These guys work incredibly hard, but they, um, all this discussion about energy and what has to happen down here, it's an incredible impact What uh, and a huge devastating lift if they close down Comanche 3. So they've closed down the other coal fire plants. There's There was like 1, 2, and 3, right? Mm-hmm. So they closed down 1 and 2, and they came up with an energy plan. Everybody worked on it. We're going to close them down. And originally, they were. it was planned to be closed down in 2070. They moved it up to 2040, um, which uh, in and of itself is a huge lift. And then they said, um, nope, that's not good enough. You're going to have to close them down in 30. And now there's a big battle to do that. So while they're trying to make sure that we don't, you know, completely economically devastate and make a ghost town, um, of the entire, or, you know, make this all ghost town down here, they're looking at solutions for other things. So this discussion got started today. Uh, and so we're going to be talking about this a little bit more. Yeah. And they do have some time. So this, they do have some this time. isn't just like end of the world immediate now, but they, it's, right. it is coming up fast, but there is some time. And, you know, they, there's some other stuff. There's some, um, you know, we work with uh, some solar people trying to help them yeah. make the right connections. And, you know, solar is great, like large cells, uh, large scale solar. There's some plans for that that's going to help out. Um, I think they, they're probably going to, you're probably going to see some windmills go up 
some more around here. There's some down in the Huerfano area. Um, and not to not bashing solar at all, but uh, it's kind of funny because I got solicited on a phone call from one of these people that's um, a salesperson, like, how much is your electric bill? Well, first off, it was kind of shady. It was like, I got a text from a, a 720 or 303 number, and it was like, hey, is this Brian? And I'm like, uh, yeah, who is this? They're like, oh, how are you doing today? We haven't talked in a while. And I was like, uh, who is this again? <laughs> and then I get this long text that's like, have you thought about switching to solar? You know, what's your, how much is your electric bill? I know you're with Black Hills Energy and all this. I'm like, oh, okay, it's a salesperson. But it started off just kind of shady anyway. Yeah. And uh, so I, I went through it. I played the, I played the game. You know, I, I kind of want to get solar on my house and do this, but I know it, it is expensive. There is like financing options and stuff. So I, I went through, I was like, this is my electric bill. And my electric bill is pretty high in the summer with the AC running and everything. And my credit's okay. It's not the greatest, but it's not bad. Um, And they went through for the financing. And it it actually would cost me more to put up solar over whatever the financing time frame was. It was like 10 years or something. Um, My energy bill with the financing in it would be more than what I pay now over 10 years, unless there's a drastic spike in rates in the next few years. Right. It would be more expensive over the next decade for me to finance solar and put it on my house. Now, I don't know if it's just because this is the company or, you know, I'm, I know people that have solar, they're like, it's great. Like, I don't pay anything. You know, my electricity bill's so low. But for me and somebody that's, you know, middle of the road credit, does okay financially, not super great. Um, it's just unaffordable for me right now. Yeah. And if you look at Pueblo, I make, you know, between me and my wife, we make a decent living compared to the majority of Pueblo. Um, And that's like their target saying, you know, this is going to be cheaper energy for you. They just, I don't see people being able to afford this in Pueblo. To put the solar panels on their homes or anything like that. We had the same, we had the same discussion about a year ago that we were really thinking about it. Um, We were thinking about refinancing the house, um, at the time and thought, you know, we could put some of that money back into it and do it. But the ROI wasn't enough to do it, to, to justify doing it. Yeah. And it's, it's about twenty twenty five thousand dollars $25,000 to put the solar panels on, on the house. And most people, if they have 20000 to $25,000 lying around that they can do that, that's not going to be a priority. And yeah. until it's something like that, it's not going to happen. That being said, but on the flip side, these large scale solar projects, right? Uh, you know the the valley, the water predictions aren't out yet, but you know you're, you're it's going to hit the valley pretty hard. So you're going to look at I don't know how many acres, but a lot of acres maybe not farming in the next yeah. year or so due to water and you know what's happening. So with that, like there may be some places to put in a large scale solar farm that actually will generate revenue for the farmer, the producer that would be, instead of farming this, they're going to put solar on it. And that that's good. You know, that's a good thing. It's adapting to the times, but. Well, and I think what I hear uh, in one way or another on every discussion with, regardless of who it is, is that there's no way that any one of these things can support the energy needs by themselves. Solar can't do it. Nuclear can't do it. Wind can't do it. Oil and gas can't do it. Coal's not going to be doing it. Um, there's no, just no way for them not to be interdependent. So why can't we have the discussion? 
Yeah, there actually is one thing that has been looked at in the past that would kind of solve our problems, but I think it's undoable now. Um, the DOD was looking at it and Japan and a few other places. And I, I know this because I have a friend that worked on this project for five years. I think he's a physicist. Right. Um, so this is insane. And this could be the future of energy. Who knows? But they were looking at deploying a solar cell in high Earth orbit, even further than high Earth orbit. And I mean, these things that would be like, you know, 20 like atoms thick of gold leaf or whatever. And it would gather, it's basically a giant solar farm the size of Texas in space. And it would beam the energy down by microwaves. Now this sounds insane and like totally sci-fi, <laughs> but it has been tested and it is doable. Just not right how now. How do they the distribute the technology? How do they distribute the electricity? So like the, the idea was, um, Japan when they were looking at it so that the military looked at it on more of a small scale, like a smaller solar cell, they could beam it via microwave radiation to a set of antennas on the ground to power everything. Japan was looking at it as building like a collector in the ocean. So it'd be this giant dish. And then the, the satellite, the solar satellite would beam it down to the dish and that would distribute the power. The insane one that my friend was working on, and again, this sounds like sci-fi, and it's actually in a, quite a few sci-fi books too, which is probably where they got the idea. But they were literally talking about putting something up in space like the size of Colorado. He said that ideally they wanted it to be the size of Texas, which um, is why it's undoable now. But something like that could power the United States indefinitely. Uh, but... Again, to put something that large, you know, we, we're just not quite there What could yet. possibly go wrong? Yeah. yeah. I feel like episode two um, of Star Wars, episode two, there was um, a solar sail ship. Oh, yeah. Did I yeah, just that's make a that thing. up? No, that's a, that's a real thing, too. So, yeah, I think we should maybe just go that way. Let's just all do everything on powers by solar sails. Can we do yeah. that? Is that realistic? Eventually. Eventually we could do that, but not right now. Not right now. And certainly not in a 20 to 30 to 40 time frame. No, no, not at all. <laughs> it's like 150 years. This is when we're living on Mars and have space elevators or we're wiped out by <laughs> nuclear annihilation. And then it doesn't matter. <laughs> all right. So this meeting today, coming stepping back from the sci-fi part of it, this meeting today, um, we had... Uh, Secretary Granholm um, came in virtually. Uh, what they're talking about was what they're trying to do, and, and the terminology is a deep decarbonization portfolio of electricity. And it was really interesting, if you remember Will Tor, who is the director of Colorado, the Colorado Energy Office, we heard him give testimony mm -hmm. um, I think it was right before or right after I did. I felt, I can't remember, on Senate Bill 200. Yeah. But this guy is sharp. And yeah, he's, he's good. actually really, um, he's very sweet and he's kind of soft-spoken, but he knows his stuff. And they put him through that in that committee yeah. hearing uh, back and forth. But I would, so I was really interested to hear what he said because Oh, gosh, it's maybe two years ago. It wasn't very long after Polis came into office. I just, I looked at him. He was down here for something. And I said, all right, when are we going to get serious about nuclear and hydrogen production? And why haven't we done that yet? 
and it was interesting at the time because he gave me the same exact answer that Alice Jackson, who is the Colorado CEO of XL Energy, gave. And they said, right now, it's not economically feasible. Yeah. I was expecting Polis to come at me with some kind of environmental argument or whatever. And I was expect I don't know what I was expecting from Alice Jackson, but they both said the exact same thing. So now, and it's been in recent days, um, uh the president has said they're committing a whole bunch of money to this, that yeah. they're getting really serious about it. So if they're getting really serious about it and they're willing to put in the money on the infrastructure, I wonder, and you've got Bill Gates, you've got some of these high-level thinkers on the, the nuclear energy side of things about, it's sort of like um, Winston Churchill says that democracy is the worst form of government except all the others. Yeah. I'm wondering if that doesn't apply to nuclear energy. Could be. But, you know, the United States is actually a very nuclear-friendly country. Um, you know, my grandma used to work at the first nuclear power plant in Idaho, which is also where they tested the first nuclear submarines, and they have a nuclear airplane there that never flew or okay. run once. but. You know, nuclear ha does have a, a presence in the United States. The problem with the United States is we're so spread out. So, like, you know, France, they have one utility company, and France has powered, I think, like 75% of their yeah. energy comes from nuclear. Then you go across the border to Germany, and they're getting away from nuclear. They're going to all solar, wind, et cetera, renewable energy. So why is that? Um, I think that was just a result of the accident in Japan because that decision was made. It was a knee-jerk reaction. And again, you got to look at these places. We're talking old nuclear plants. We're not talking new nuclear plants. These are the massive big ones. Yeah, um, on a rift, on yeah. a continental rift yeah. that is prone, very still active volcanoes. And yeah. Well, in Japan, yeah. But in Japan, but that's what I'm that, saying. That's in a Japan, whole, that's a whole so, show to go over what happened there. Yeah, that's a whole other thing. So, but it it's not that's it's a different animal than what we're talking about yeah. here. It's the smaller ones, and that's what people need to realize. It's not the old nuclear. This is a new thing. This is a new, uh, and it's constantly being updated. Right. This is yep. a, a ever emerging, ever developing um, energy, right, or industry. Yes. Yeah. So the other people that were there, I just wanted to let everybody know that it um, was oh, this new scale power. And then also, I was really interested in the Utah Associated Municipal Power System. And what uh, what he had to say, it was a Mason Baker. Um, and both him and then also um, the chief, uh, Chris Colbert from from New, um, New Scale were there, and they talked a little bit about it. And I thought that they got a little bit, I mean, some of the technical stuff I was out of my depth on. Yeah. I, I just know, I think about it more about impact for Coloradans. You know, that's who we want to take care of. But, you know, when we started to talk about what was really going to happen, um, when if we're looking at, at shutting down Comanche without anything else in place to do to take care of that or pick that up. And really logistically, I don't think there's anything. There's a lot, there's some solar projects that absolutely need to go forward. There's wind projects that absolutely need to go forward. And then there's, but there's no way for them to do it on their own. Um, but this was the, some of the impact that I thought was really interesting. Um, if they were to put the, the small plant that they're talking about into Pueblo, this would be um, 12, 100 construction jobs over three years, but then 
270 uh, operation jobs for 60 years, mm-hmm. um, it would bring in um, $16 million a year in local taxes, and uh, it would bring $470 million in local goods and services yearly that would be, um, that would be brought in. And then it would also, this was the other thing, because we've had a lot of discussions on how we really, this just transition, we're displacing coal workers. Yes. And that's a huge industry in Colorado for us to displace coal workers with nothing else. So everybody's been talking about this whole just transition thing. Um, This would actually do that. They would be able to retain and and retrain coal and gas plant workforce use coal and gas plant infrastructure so they'll reuse it. So they're not talking about completely knocking down Comanche. They're talking about repurposing Repurposing Comanche. So it's already there. It's already, it's not ready to go. Um, But it's, uh, and it's going to preserve the local tax base and economy, workers and families and communities. Um, And that's something that's a huge concern um, to all of us is if we're going to do this and it's how do we do it right. And if we were, we're not certainly not the first community in the U S to consider this or to have already done this. And so there's a lot of lessons that have already been learned. And again, it's a developing, I'm, I'm really interested in what detractors will be saying that can answer those things. Can you genuinely show something that's not this, that would um, have that dramatic decarbonization and also make it so that people can continue to live and work in Colorado. Yeah. And that's, you know, I, I'm just going through the, the interwebs right now because mm-hmm. um, you mentioned hydrogen. Uh, it looks like New York's actually testing a green hydrogen plant in Long Island, of all places. Um, I don't know if that's a possibility here, but that's one that's been coming up. I, I'm not sure how a hydrogen power plant works, but supposedly. So um, if you were to produce, you can actually, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, again, I'm not a scientist or technically savvy in any of this, but somewhere I was reading that nuclear power plants can be used to produce. To produce the hydrogen. Produce hydrogen. Yeah. And so if, if they're providing that clean and then they're also creating other clean energy, I kind of want to put up the table and say, convince I, I me think, otherwise. I, don't, I think that hydrogen wouldn't be a viable thing here in Colorado because it uses water. That's the thing. That's why and you're yeah, seeing hydrogen oh, on, yep, on coastal yep. cities because I think they can use the um, salt There's water. a desalinization yeah, process yeah. that goes with it. Yeah, but yeah, you're right. We're, we're going to see what these... This group says to push back on the nuclear, and it'll be interesting. the The issue that they had the first time was they would not sit down and discuss it. It was very defensive on both sides of the argument. It was everybody was angry at each other. I think that when this, as this develops, like both sides are going to have to sit at the table and and talk about their concerns, and that's going to be the challenge with this. So I. And you've already heard this story, but I think it bears repeating. A couple of years ago, um, XL Energy was doing their, um, they were doing their board meeting here. Um, and I had Timmy with me that day. So he was like 11 or maybe 12 at the time. Um, and uh, he was getting kind of bored. And Holly um, Velasquez that we've had on the show saw him and started talking to him. And 
And he was, all of a sudden he starts talking about nuclear energy. So she introduces him to Tim, who was their, um, their lead science, nuclear scientist. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, I've been told that he's uh, moved up in a, a bigger leadership role for the organization. But then they started to have this back and forth. And Timmy, who was fearless, was talking to Tim, who is was a six foot five, two hundred and fifty pound, but nerd, right? He had this little bow tie, and he's a science guy. And they're going back and forth about this. And Timmy was throwing some questions at him, and everybody starts gathering because they could not believe this exchange between Timmy and Tim. Um, and and Tim was really great about it, and you know took very much a, a teacher role in it. Finally, Timmy said something that was so simple and so profound, but he said, look, it comes down to this. And everybody's looking at like this kid, like, what, who are you? And everybody's looking at me and I'm saying the same thing. He goes, it comes down to this. All I really need to know is that it's safe. It's safe for the environment. It's safe for the animals. It's safe for the people. Is it safe? And Tim said, yes. He goes, sometimes things happen, but it's safe. And, to, and he goes, do you want me to ex- tell you how it's safe? And Timmy's like, no, I'm good. Yeah. All any of us really need to understand is, is, is whether or not it's safe. And I think that's the whole thing right there in a nutshell. Until they watch Chernobyl or something like no, that. No, 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 I can't. Timmy, <laughs> no, we can't do that. They take things way too literally, um, those two. But uh, I, I thought that was pretty profound. I'm very much looking forward to having some more conversations because, of course, in my usual manner, I have lots of questions. I want to know. Who's going to own it? I want to know what the um, regionally what it's going to do. I want to, like I just have a long list of questions. So we're going to have um, Garrison Ortiz and Francis Casilla on um, a little bit further down the road because of course there's a whole lot and and environmentalists are locked and loaded to come after these guys on this and that's okay. I think those are important discussions to have. I think every they should have everything thrown at them um, in every way to before they you know, would pull the trigger on anything like this. So um, we've got, I'm looking forward to those those discussions. So we've got a couple of things coming up. We are really working hard on, this is going to be so cool. The annual meeting is coming up in October. We, um, you are able to sponsor if you're a member. Uh, it's going to be 150 to go if you're a member. It'll be two, I think, 225 if you're not a member. But it's going to be in Trinidad this mm-hmm. year. It's going to be so much fun and so interesting um, to see sort of you know what the results of some of these things have been this last year, but also get a flavor for something that I think a lot of our members haven't done before. I don't think they've experienced Trinidad. And certainly they won't have experienced Trinidad in the way that we're going to show it off to them. So we're going to, we're working with the college, with the Chamber of Commerce down there, um, with our board members, Phil um, Rico, who's the mayor, and Tony Haas, who's a commissioner. Um, we're going to put tickets on sale for that I think it's August 9th, whatever that I think so, is. yeah. Yeah. August 9th on that. Um, and it's during the Spaghetti Western Festival in Trinidad. So we we planned it. We've I did that specially for you. As soon as I said what's happening down there and they said this and you got so excited. Oh, yeah, it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. So there's they're having the Spaghetti Western Festival. We're going to get to see the Fox Theater when we're down there. They they're going to have they are absolutely rolling out the red carpet for yeah. us to do that. They're very excited. We're very excited. 
um, it's going to be something that uh, it's going to be a whole new experience for a whole lot of people. So we'll be getting uh, back to you on that. There's a lot of discussions, some rulemaking discussions and other things um, going on right now. But I think um, this was one of the big ones. Is there anything there's a lot of you're working on a lot of veteran stuff that you'll get back to us on um, that there's. I'm so glad that you're doing that. I'm so yep. glad that you're working on some of this stuff. Tomorrow we have a meeting with Mount Carmel because they're coming down to Pueblo to expand their Southern Colorado presence. They're already in Trinidad and in Colorado Springs. So we're going to do the first meeting tomorrow. sounds like they're ready to move in next month or in two months. Yeah, so. this is moving really quickly, so, but it's going to be incredibly yeah, impactful yeah. for our veteran community here in Pueblo. And it's such a strong and vibrant community um, there. Um Chad Vorthman, I know you're listening. I'm going to see you tomorrow at Centennial Airport at 7.30 in the morning. They're going to launch the Firehawk. They, we helped support that. Um, they're turning a, um, a Black Hawk helicopter into a firefighting machine. It's called the Firehawk. Uh, we'll be up there to talk about that. Um, we'll meet with you next time. We'll see what happens next week. We're going to see what happens next week. It's one of four things. It's, yeah, it's be, one of like. One of, they'll all be interesting. So they'll all be interesting happens, and it's all going to happen. Um, we will talk to you then. Um, in the meantime, if you're not an Action 22 member, what are you waiting for? You need to be a part of this organization. Uh, email us at uh, show at action22.org or you can email brian at brian.mccain at action22.org. Um, and we'll make sure that you can be a part of all the incredible stuff, impactful, powerful stuff that's happening with your organization. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you for tuning in to Making Action Happen. Be sure to join your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain, for another edition of the show next Thursday at 1 p.m. Mountain Time, 12 noon Pacific Time, and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.